The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Carnival of Fire, Episode 1. There is nothing I dread more than a storm at night. When rain pours over the swamp and thrums against the tin roof, my stomach churns. When thunder rumbles in the distance and the air is sticky and lukewarm, I lie atop my sheets, staring at the ceiling, awake and petrified. I dread such nights because they make me remember. I try not to. I try not to think. I try to squeeze the memory out. But no matter how I distract myself, my mind wanders back. I close my eyes, and there I am again, standing by the side of a soggy road, the rain splashing all around me. I'm alone. The night is dark, and it is the autumn of 1910. How I wish I'd kept on walking. I might have avoided that maelstrom of horrors. But I did stop. I looked up, and there it was. A billboard, just visible in the black monsoon. I gazed up at that sign, wide-eyed with wonder and read its moniker again and again, the Xerxes and Xander Circus. The curled red letters were painted bright across the wood sign. The mural showed snarling lions and a woman on a trapeze. I swallowed hard. That sign was a beacon of hope for me, and there was no time to lose. I was nothing in those days. Only a tall and haggard man, neither young nor old, protected from the torrents by a broken umbrella, my suitcase hanging at my side. Hungry, weary, how could I turn away from that sign and its promise of wild animals, exotic women, the greatest showman in the world? If I'd only known what awaited me, I would never have trudged across that muddy highway and found myself at the ticket booth, asking the cherubic young man for a job. You'll have to talk to old Cletus, said the vendor. And where would I find him? I asked. The vendor sighed. I could tell the day had been long. The big top was collapsing as we spoke, its supports broken down into piles of bars and posts. Its fabric was bundled into work gloves and packed into wooden crates. In the gathering darkness and hammering rain, I could hardly make out the black wall of train cars idling beyond. The silhouettes of workmen bent and straightened, their figures soaked to the skin, and I wondered how many would contract a fever in the coming days. At last, the vendor led me into an abandoned railroad tower, which stood beside the tracks and served as temporary offices. Beyond the chipped old door lay a muddle of boxes and barrels. The Carnies had fashioned a desk out of a wooden board and a pair of sawhorses, and it was here that I first laid eyes on old Cletus, the ringmaster of the Xerxes and Xander Circus. 
He was a squat and portly man, the portrait of the proper ringmaster, wearing a scarlet greatcoat and a shirt striped blue and white. His mustache was curled, as were the horns of hair that radiated away from his center part. His hair was an equal mix of brown and gold, like threads woven on a loom, and he clearly took care to comb and oil it. Once I entered and the vendor introduced me, old Cletus took a long moment to look up from his papers, and when he did, he raised to his eyes an old pince-nez on a long stick. Well, said old Cletus, what have we here? He spoke in the burly voice of southern aristocracy, a chord and cadence that hardly matched his diminutive stature. Good evening, sir, I said. My name is Jean-Luc Thibodeau, and I've come to offer my services as a magician. A magician, you say? Old Cletus barked. We have magicians already, and they serve us well enough. Why should I suffer hiring you as well? I'm a busker, sir, I persisted. I like to work the aisles. My specialty is uh, cards, rings, tricks of the smaller sort. But I rile up an audience, sir, I truly do. Old Cletus's lips turned downward. He shook his head, for I was not worth the breath required to dismiss me. I genuflected humbly and turned as if to go. But then I stopped and said, It's your decision, of course, but before I leave you, could I have back my playing card? Old Cletus had barely picked up his pen before he stopped and glared at me with reluctant curiosity. I gestured to his desk and said, The Jack of Diamonds, it's underneath your papers. His chin dropped, and then he spread the papers aside, where, in the middle of his jumble, a single card face down. The card was indisputably mine, for its pattern top was printed with the letters JLT. When he flipped it over with his stubby fingers, the twin faces of the Jack of Diamonds looked up at him. Old Cletus harumphed at this, but I think with fair amusement. He rubbed his fading irises, waved fingers in the air, and said, the train disembarks at dawn. Till then, you may stay in any boxcar with enough straw to make a bed. I thanked him gladly, slipped the card into my special deck, and marched my way to the train. Dawn broke over the Louisiana flats and the slaughtered husks of sugarcane glistened with morning dew. Golden mist dissipated before the sun, and I greeted a morning I'd feared would never come. I clutched my trunk close to my chest, for it contained all my worldly things, except for the broken umbrella that was furled at my side. The train blew its whistle, and I felt a shock of relief. Soon, I would escape this town, and my past would slip away with the countryside. The train lurched forward, and I watched old bonds scroll past my aching eyes. Never had I felt so grateful to leave a place behind. 
The night before, the adjacent acres were a village of tents and cages, a bustle of laboring men. But the circus was packed away now, and all that remained was crushed brown grass and the scattered refuse of departed souls. But as I watched the nearby road, I saw a pair of horsemen ride around the corner. They were policemen, I could tell, wearing the black uniforms and hard hats with silver stars that I had long come to fear. Their limber horses trotted through the muck and splashed in the puddles, and I thought for a moment that they would pick up speed, gallop alongside, and force the train to stop. I thought I knew what brought them here, and I wondered how easily I could leap from this car, sprint across the empty fields, and disappear among the distant trees. Yet they only rode apace until they turned down another road and were gone. I swallowed with relief, raked fingers through my greasy hair, and felt at long last that I was safe. The countryside blew past me in a blur of faded green. In the forests, the foliage had withered in the cool nights, and some of the trees stood naked. The sky was garlanded with geese migrating southward. It was that strangest time of year when standing in the shadows will chill you to the bone, yet when the clouds part, the sunlight burns your brow. I stood on the edge of the open doorway as the boxcar rattled along, feeling breezes whip against my coat. I had hopped some trains before, and I loved this queer sensation of standing on the edge of the floor, leaning against the doorframe, watching the dark gravel of the railroad bed slide beneath my feet. It was a thrill unlike any other for in those days the train was the fastest thing on earth. Nowhere in the world could a man observe such speeds firsthand, and here I stood on the precipice. One false move, one clumsy step, and I might tumble to my death. The boxcar was full of men, six in all, a motley crew of laborers. One of the men approached me, and I marveled at his balance. Even though the floor was shaken, he could stand easily, even with his hands buried deeply in the pockets of his overalls. His face was pockmarked and scarred, and his smoky eyes betrayed a simple mind. Is that all you're carrying? The man called out by way of introduction. Everything I own, I replied in a cordial shout. I admire that, said the man. My mama used to say, the lighter the suitcase, the less burden the soul. That was mighty wise of her, I said. Listen, said the man. The boys and I was talking. We know you're new here. We don't mind a company, especially when we're on the move. But this boxcar's only so big. Six is comfortable, but seven is a crowd. You follow what I'm saying? I reckon I do, I said, but a man has got to rest his head somewhere. I'll tell you what, the man said, rubbing his chin in feigned thoughtfulness. I bought me a tent a while back. 
I was a riveter for the circus. Slept on the riverbanks. It's an old tent, but it'll do, especially in the dry states, where it don't rain too much. He wiggled his jaw from side to side, waiting for me to make an offer. Finally, he said, I'll let it go for two dollars. I nearly balked at this, but these men would judge me for my response, and I saw them watching from the bowels of the car. Despite the noise and wind, their attention was rapt. These workmates had known each other for months or years, and their bond was strong, I could tell. They had no use for a two-bit trickster, and I had neither muscle nor allies to oppose them. That's generous, I answered. If I were a man of better means, I'd pay in full, but as it stands, all I can afford is a dollar fifty. It's yours if you'll take it. He eyed me up and down. Finally, he nodded and retreated to the shadows, and a moment later, he returned clutching a pregnant gunner sack. He laid it at my feet and crossed his arms, waiting for his payment. I took great pains to search my pockets, digging out pennies and nickels and dimes, counting them carefully in my palm, then dumped handfuls into his cupped fingers. He double-checked my arithmetic, as any poor man would, and when the transaction was complete, he tipped his cap and said, Thank you kindly. Then he turned away. My name's Jean-Luc, by the way, I called after him. He pivoted a little, but didn't turn around all the way. Pleased to meet you, he said, but he did not state his name, then or ever after. The circus is a sprawling organism, and when the train stopped, the carnies poured out of every opening toting bags and boxes, ropes and ladders and lumber and tools and spikes. They went immediately to work, building their makeshift city in a fallow field beneath the waning sun. We'd arrived in Texas, and the land was brittle and dry. The nearby town was nothing but a cluster of rooftops and chimneys, a brick smokestack and some pecan trees scattered here and about. I wandered through the din of workers, feeling idle and alone. No one said hello. No one handed me a hammer. I felt more invisible than ever. I studied that circus train, a mishmash of different cars, no two alike. There were freight cars and cattle cars, proper passenger cars and converted luggage cars, wooden walls and metal siding, open wagons heavy with crates and corroded old carriages with clerestory roofs. Famous names had faded from their surfaces, names like Shea and Southern Pacific and Pennsylvania Railroad, their regal letters barely visible. There was neither rhyme nor reason to that mismatched medley, and even the caboose had found itself in the middle of the line. I found a secluded spot and set up my tent. The pockmarked man was right. It was a shabby piece of fabric, and its A-frame was so low that I couldn't sit up straight. But it had a flap that I could close for privacy. I was glad for the arid weather, for the fabric had some holes. I decided that they would help to ventilate the stuffy quarters. 
The tent afforded me some respite, and that was good, but it served a second purpose. Among these dubious strangers, I must appear poor and destitute. Just as a farmer sows his crops, the illusionist must plant the seeds of deception. I was an outsider, that was clear. But this was the least of my worries, for I had always been an outsider. A quiet recluse means no harm, yet I could not afford to rouse suspicion. My life depended on it. You've been listening to The Carnival of Fire, Episode 1, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. All music and sound effects, courtesy of and licensed by audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting world of Uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.